0: And we're on. It's good to be back, especially after last time. Remember last year? Some of you may remember. Yeah, Pastor Bruce, I thought he was my friend. He finishes this glorious series on the Book of Colossians and invites me to come and preach on the greetings to people. He serves up this wonderful banquet of ministry and gives me the crumbs left over at the end of the book. I thought he was my friend, you know. I'm, but this is, this is sweet vengeance. Today he's in Phoenix, 110 degrees. <laughs> I'm in cool Huntington Beach. That's not bad. Um, anyway. It's good to be back, and back with good friends, and back, um, back in America, because I have been traveling a great deal. As you may know that uh, I am involved. I, I teach at Biola University at Talbot School of Theology, um, but I've started a ministry called Crosstalk Global. You know why? Because the church, where the church is growing most in the world, in Latin America, in Asia, um, parts of Eastern Europe and Africa, where the church is growing the most, that's where the schools are not located. So, vast sections of the church have no training at all. Eighty-five percent of all pastors in the world have no training. Let me pause and let that sink in. Imagine what that would be like. Uh, They have a Bible, but they don't know how to understand it or how to communicate it. It's kind of like uh, you being invited into a fully furnished kitchen. All the ingredients, all the equipment, the best pans, knives, everything you can imagine, all the equipment's there. You just don't know how to cook. It'd be nice if someone showed you what to do with all that stuff, right? Because the equipment is useless if you don't know how to use it. That's what we're finding around the world. So my job is not to give people degrees, (laughs) when God returns no diplomas are going to heaven. My job is to teach them how to cook. How can they, these gifted, godly people that God has placed in churches that He's grown all around the world, how can they learn, can I teach them how to understand and communicate the Bible so they can grow Christians and reach others for Christ? It's a very simple ministry. But that's what we do. We're working in a number of different places. Did you get a brochure when you came in? Some of you did. If you didn't, you'll get one when you get out. Um, we are working in Havana, Cuba, um, where there is great persecution. And Whatever you read in the newspapers, I've been there enough. The secret police on every corner. It's illegal to build churches. If you build a church that's not sanctu- sanctioned and they won't allow you to sanction them, they bulldoze it down. Um, but we're equipping biblical communicators there to go out, and people are coming to Christ in great numbers. We started a, a new work among uh, pastors and Christian leaders in an inner province and in a city called Cologne as well. Um, this February, we'll be starting a new work in Panama City, Panama, geared to reach the, some key leaders across all of Latin America. Your Pastor Bruce is going to be part of that, which I'm so grateful for because my Spanish sucks. Um, So, he's going to be a a vital part of that ministry. I just got back a couple months ago from New Delhi, India, where I am just so encouraged by the level of dedication of the Christians there. The Hindu government hates Christians. They no longer allow missionaries in. They are... um, There is deliberate persecution of Christians. And if they're not being persecuted by the Hindu majority, they're being persecuted by the Muslim minority. I just got back um, uh, a couple of weeks ago from Hanoi, Vietnam. where 60 years, the government has forbidden the training of pastors. Forbidden the training of pastors. They have close to 2,000 churches and less than 300 pastors. I'm not good in math, but that's a problem. Um, we, um I just got back literally a few days ago from Myanmar, um, from the city of Yangon in Myanmar. That is the most aggressive Buddhist culture that I have ever seen. It is incredible and oppressive. It is demonic. It just, uh, there's no other word for it. Um, I challenge you to come into the Golden Pagoda to see the opulence, the worship of false gods all over the place. And there's only two reactions I have, and I have them simultaneously. I weep and I'm angry. I feel like Paul walking through Athens and seeing all of these idols and people worshiping all that is wrong and not the true God. Um, But there is a church there, and there are people who love Christ in spite of that, and they want to spread the gospel, and they want to grow and nurture Christians, if only someone will show them how to cook. That's what they're looking for. We're working in Eastern Europe. We started in um, Oradia, Romania. Um, we've now begun in Yash, Romania. We've started in Chernazi, Ukraine. Uh, We're looking at soon starting in Moldova. The need is overwhelming, and it's really a very simple model. What we do is we go in and work with a small group, 24 people. And then we um, take those people and we train them. Uh, Out of those that we train, probably about six are exceptional. Those people we invite to be apprentices. And after they have served for three years with another group as apprentices, we invite them to be leaders. So in three generations, we have Vietnamese reaching Vietnamese. We have Cubans reaching Cubans, Indians reaching Indians, and there's no one more effective to reach a culture than people from that culture. We've taught them how to cook so that every week they can do what they couldn't have done previously, serve up meals from God's Word. Because man does not live by bread alone, Christ said. But what? On the words of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've been supporting that. Some of you directly, many of you, all of you indirectly through the church, and we deeply appreciate it. And I thought you would be interested this morning to catch a glimpse of just one person in one ministry, the difference that it's making. Watch it now in this video.
1: There is a baseball stadium close to our church. It's a government stadium, and occasionally they give us permission to use it. I was abandoned when I was 12 years old. So when we find kids like these, and there are many of them in our community, we know God is giving us an opportunity to reach each one of these children with his love. My name is Ricardo Perez. I'm the pastor of the church Unidos en Amor, which means United in Love. It's a church that is on the outskirts of Havana, an area with a lot of spiritual conflict. There are many social problems and family problems, Drug abuse, alcoholism, and divorce are common.
0: When I met Pastor Ricardo, it was obvious that he had a deep passion for God and a love for the people that God had given to him to minister to. But it was also obvious that what he needed was the ability to know how to understand God's Word how to break it apart, understand what God is saying, and how to communicate it in a relevant, effective way to the people God had called him to reach.
1: I was alone since the age of 12, living on the streets because I'd been abandoned. And I made all the bad choices a man can make. And in his great mercy, our Heavenly Father extended his hand and pulled me out of that sinful life. 15 years ago, I felt the voice of God tell me, I want you to start a church. So our church started with 15 members. After the first week, just seven of us were left, basically my family. We kept walking
0: by faith, and God kept adding more people. You can't grow a church without effectively communicating God's word. You just can't. He knew that. And he knew he needed more than just a three-day seminar. But he was not a candidate for traditional seminary education. He didn't have the money, he didn't have the educational background, he didn't have the time to get away from family and ministry. And even if he could, there was no seminary to go to. No, what he needed was a high quality, locally delivered, culturally relevant, skill-centered program that would help him be the biblical communicator he knew his people desperately needed. He really needed CrossTalk Global. I
1: do like to preach the word. I remember that my pastor was greatly used by God. I used to say, "One day I want to preach like he does," but I couldn't find the best way to preach God's word. I now see this is a different yet very effective way of preaching. This is what Crosstalk has done for us.
0: Pastors all around the world want to preach effectively just like Pastor Ricardo. But did you know that 85% of all pastors in the world have no formal training? And traditional institutions have not, are not, cannot meet this need. We need a new paradigm, and I think that's Crosstalk Global. We provide 240 hours of some of the best training in Biblical communication available anywhere in the world. But we do more than just train people. We train people to preach, but also to train others to do so, and others, and others. Because our goal is not just to strengthen one church, but to strengthen churches all through a community, all through a nation, all through a culture, so that God's kingdom spreads without end.
1: Today, Crosstalk provides a simpler way to prepare a more profound message. I'm more relaxed as a preacher, and I'm more secure about what I'm going to preach. So it's not only better for me, but also for the congregation. The congregation understands the messages better than before we had Crosstalk. Crosstalk came to Cuba at a critical moment, and I thank God for sending Pastor Kent in these last days to help us prepare for revival in Cuba. So I strongly encourage everyone to support Crosstalk through prayer and through financial support so that Crosstalk can come not only to Cuba, but also to the rest of the world. Because this special teaching will empower believers to preach the word with wisdom.
0: Thank you for helping make this possible, because I have the privilege of seeing what happens to Pastor Ricardo happen all around the world, and it is so exciting, so transforming. If you want more information, um, at the table at the back, there's a comment card you can fill out so that I can be in touch and send you some more. Put it in that little box there. Help yourself to a brochure if uh, if you haven't got one. I would uh, love to be in touch. But now, according to this, it's my turn to preach, but I'm not alone. This morning all over the world, millions of pastors are standing in front of millions of churches to preach God's Word. As they walk upstairs like this and they stand there, they're standing in the midst of cultures, Cultures that are deeply rooted in sin. Cultures, as I mentioned, like Cuba, where there is institutional repression, discrimination. In um, cultures like India, where my translator told me that he and his family have to move apartments every six months because the community will find out they are Christians and literally drive them out where people are having their homes burned and cars destroyed and they're fleeing for their life but they're never leaving Christ. Cultures cultures like Vietnam, where one of the leaders told me how he was recently beaten by the government, where in just a few years ago they would capture, they would take Christians who refused to give up Christianity. And they would hold them in small cells, try to get them to recant. And if they wouldn't, they would call them fools. And uh, when they didn't, they, if they wouldn't recant, then one night they would put in their food, some drugs. The drugs were a mental lobotomy. They destroyed their mind. They made them fools. If you're going to be a fool for Christ, we'll make you a fool. It's the kind of societies that pastors all around the world are standing up and addressing. And I think many of them are saying, what am I supposed to do in a culture that's so twisted by sin like this? What do I have to offer as I stand up to speak and all I have are little puffs of air? Have you ever wondered that? You read the newspaper, you read the Christian journals, and all they're talking about is how bad things are, right? how the culture is being twisted, how the institutions that are guiding us are, are leading us oftentimes astray. And, and what can we do in a culture like this? We're, we're nobody. All we have are little puffs of air. Nobody listens to us. And even if they did, our words would mean nothing. All over the world, pastors are standing up to preach. As they stand to preach, they're not only aware they're in a culture, but they're also aware they're in a congregation. And just like here, people are coming with needs, big needs, significant needs, personal needs. They're coming with uprised faces, looking at the pastor saying, give me something to solve my problems. My marriage looks like it's falling apart. It started great, but but I don't know if this, this can work and what will happen to our lives if this doesn't work. Oh no, help me, help me, help me. And there are parents who are looking up with hurt in their eyes because their child just got brought home last night by the police. Wondering, what do I do about that? How can I help? Pastor, give me a solution. What can you say that will help? Others are suffering from financial problems. Not that they won't work, but they can't find work. We're going to lose our home. How do I feed my family? How does this work? And they're crying out in desperation. Their hearts are aching, looking for answers. Others are faced with addictions. The problems are huge and they're manifest. And every congregation has them. And every Sunday, even this Sunday, pastors are looking those people in the eyes. They begin to speak. And I think in their heart, like you, they are saying, what can I do? To fix those situations what can i do with my little puffs of air you're sitting in your cubicle at work you hear the gossip the gossip going around you hear lives falling apart you want to fix them but what can you say how what what can you do you're in a profession that is that is changing that is adopting standards that are wrong that are evil you know, you know they have to be redeemed but what are you supposed to do you're just a simple accountant how can you change the whole field you're just a private in the, in the army. What are you supposed to do to change this massive institution? You feel helpless. Even if you did speak up, what are your little puffs of air going to do to change the reality around you? If you ever felt like that, I think you'll identify with the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Because here in Jeremiah chapter 1, we see that at least at one point in his life, this prophet felt like you do. Felt like he was in a hopeless, overwhelming situation that needed to be fixed. (laughs) How? And by whom? I know that because in Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 2, we read the word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. (laughs) That wasn't a particularly good time to to hear the word of the Lord come to you. Josiah, of course, you may recall from 2 Chronicles, he was a good king. He discovered the word and was going to be doing some pretty positive things, (laughs) but He was a kid who took over from decades, decades of horrible sin. His grandfather was Manasseh, and Manasseh was a terrible, terrible king. Don't read it now, but but you can check it out later in 2 Chronicles 33. We read in verse 1 that Manasseh reigned in Jerusalem 55 years, 55 years. If you're in power 55 years, you get to impress your values, your morals into the country permanently, right? I mean, you change the the very nature of a people if you can control them for 55 years, and he did. It tells us he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places of his father. And he erected altars to Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. He put idols right in God's temple. Even worse, we read, he sacrificed his sons in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Unbelievable. And his son who took over, Amnon, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He worshiped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. I mean, and this is the social situation that Jeremiah is in. He's living in a time where there is entrenched governmental sin, where people's hearts have been taken far away from God, and they're engaging in all these practices led by their leaders. And I think he was discouraged because not only did he live in that time, but we read in verse 1 that the words of Jeremiah of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, I think he was depressed because he lived in difficult times and he was a preacher's kid. (laughs) I feel sorry for preacher's kids. I made two of them. (laughs) When you're a preacher's kid, the problem is you hang around preachers, they get discouraged. They stand up week after week with little puffs of air and they want to change the world, and sometimes they see it doesn't happen. And they get discouraged and they start complaining. And when anyone starts to complain, they never take responsibility to themselves. They always blame somebody else, right? It's their fault. It's their fault. It's this. It's the culture. It's way too hard. You could never do it in this culture. We're too far gone. Sin is too rampant. And preachers get together with other preachers. And they get together in corporate complaining sessions. And outside of that little group are all the preachers' kids listening. They hear the inside scoop. They know how difficult and discouraging it is to live in a sin-sick society and how hopeless it seems to think we have to do something about it. I think that's why it wasn't particularly good good news to Jeremiah when we read in verse 4 that the word of the Lord came to me saying... Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Oh, good news. I mean, thanks for custom making me. Thanks for preparing before the foundation of the world good works for me to do. I mean, I really appreciate that. That's cool. But why as a prophet? I mean, for crying out loud, all I have are little puffs of air. Little puffs of air. What am I supposed to do in a world with little puffs of air? And what's even less encouraging was what God told him to do with his little puffs of air. He says, verse 10, do you notice that? See, today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms. You know, I don't feel really like I'm over them right now, God. Just just pointing that out. I'm a preacher's kid. Just an ordinary kid. And you want me to be over all these evil nations, institutions? And what do you want me to do with them? And God says. Gives them six verbs, four of them negative. Look at what he says. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to do what? What's the first one? Pluck Yeah. Uproot. Pluck out. Think of weeds in your garden, right? They're not there. They're harmful. What do you want me to do? Pull them out. What, what do you do with these evil institutions? Get rid of them. Uh, Pull them out, tear down, destroy them. Uh, When that's done, uh, destroy and overthrow whatever is evil, whatever is negative. I want you to, to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. Those are verbs used of marauding armies coming into a nation where they destroy everything in their path. You know what I want you to do, Jeremiah? I want you to destroy all evil. Oh, good, thank you. That's my job, huh? And all you give me, all I have is little puffs of air. Have you ever thought about that? God wants you to be salt and light in your community, right? In your home, in your neighborhood, in your town, in your state, in your profession. <laughs> right. And you see evil, right? Don't you see negative things? Things that need to be fixed? Things that God wants changed? Do you see that? Anyone? Anyone? Everyone. Everyone. And God says to us, be salt and light. He wants you to be the change agent? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just, I don't have what it takes. And after you destroy it, God says, you know what else I want you to do? What does he say next? The last two verbs, what are they in that verse? Build, build and to plant. Oh, good. So once you've destroyed all that's evil, I want you to build which is good and plant seeds for tomorrow so it will continue even after you're gone. Oh, <laughs> great. I destroy all that's wrong, build up everything, and all I have are little puffs of air. Anyone feel unqualified for that task? Anyone? Anyone feel unempowered? I think Jeremiah did. I think Jeremiah said, are you nuts? Ah, sovereign Lord, he says in verse 6. Just so you know, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Big task, inadequate resources. I can't accomplish what you want. I don't have the skill. I don't have the rhetorical power, the ability. I'm not that gifted. Churchill could have, may have saved England during the Second World War with his wonderful oratory. I'm not Churchill. I'm nobody. I can't do what you've asked me to do. My puffs of air are inadequate anyone feel that way? Uh, you should, because your puffs of air are unable to produce change. I can prove it. Anyone here a parent? Parent? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone have, to have ever have to say something more than once to your kids? Anyone? I mean, just what is it that you've said to your kids more than once? brush your teeth. Yeah. Yeah, I've said that to my boys a few times. Ready for school? Yep. Brush your teeth? Nope. Anyone else said do your homework? Yeah. Yeah. Have you done your homework? Nope. Um, and what else do you have to say to tell your kids? Put your on. Wake up. Put your shoes on. Make your, Make your bed. Clean your room. It's endless, right? Why do we have to say it more than once? because our words are not that powerful. We keep using them, but they don't change everything, at least not right away. I discovered that. I discovered that one Saturday morning. I woke up early, had my coffee. I got two big strapping boys at home at the time, and I got, we got work to do around this house. It's 6 a.m. We're going to get going. We got stuff to do let's go. So I stood in the hallway, sounding just like God. I know what God sounds like because it's kind of Charlton Heston, you know, that kind of, anyway, previous generation. Tried to sound like him. I stood there at 6 a.m. in the hallway, made sure their doors were open so they could hear in their bedrooms, and I said, children of my loins, I say to you, arise, go forth, and labor. Everyone could hear. It filled the house. And guess what happened? Okay. Nothing. <laughs> I mean, I would have taken even, no, I'm busy today. At least we could have an argument. I would have even taken, Barrr. I got nothing. I got My words accomplished nothing. If you try to change the world with your words, your words will accomplish nothing. Jeremiah knew that. You and I knew that. That's why he didn't really want this task. That's why you and I don't want that task. But notice what God says. When Jeremiah says, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. He says, don't say you're only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever. What does he say in the end of verse 7? You must say whatever I command. Not whatever you want to say. Whatever I want you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my hand. My what? My mouth. And said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. (laughs) That's the difference. Our words can accomplish sometimes absolutely nothing. God's words? God's words are powerful. God's words... Never return to him void, but always accomplish that which he purposes them to do. God's words are fundamentally different than our words, fundamentally. William Barclay, the commentator, talked about this. He said that in Hebrew, God's words are not just sounds representing ideas, God's words are an effectual cause. In other words, His words don't just inform, His words transform. You got that? It doesn't just tell people something, it goes beyond that, and it accomplishes what God wants to accomplish with it. It does both things. Ours only do one. His words are powerful, where our words are not. You see that in the Bible, don't you? The power of God's words. I think you do. One of the places to see that is Genesis 1. Uh, flip with me there for a second. Keep your finger in Jeremiah, but flip with me just for a second to Genesis 1. Scholars tell me when Moses wrote Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is poetic. It's poetry, it's truth, but it's truth in poetry form. Anyone write poetry? Anyone? No one writes poetry? Good. Poetry's is hard. Uh, poetry, writing poetry is kind of like playing the saxophone. It's really easy to do badly. <laughs> I can write poetry. Nobody wants to read it. My favorite poet now, Hallmark. He's pretty good. He's expensive, but he's pretty good. He, he can say what I can Because poetry communicates meaning in an artistic way so that mood is created, right? So that's what Moses is doing here in Genesis 1. He's communicating truth, but in a way, it's poetic. It, it communicates mood as well as meaning. He's saying here, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty good. Have you ever tried to create something? Anyone? Yeah? I tried to create something. It was back when I was working on my last dissertation my wife told me it was my last dissertation that's that's it I'm working hard and I got piles of books up in my the loft where I was working they were very neatly organized I'm here to tell you all topic it was was very logical system it made perfect sense but she said it looked ugly she said I don't want all this paper stuff all over the floor I want to have people over I want to get it up off the floor I want you put it let's go buy some bookshelves and put them up where it looks better and I said buy bookshelves are you nuts they charge a fortune for those things. Any man can knock together a bookshelf. Any man? Right, I can do it, easy. Really, she says. You can. Yeah. When are you going to find time? I'll do it Saturday. Really, how long is it going to take? Ah, two hours. You're going to build a bookshelf in two hours. No problem. Then she has that smile. Don't you hate that smile? That I know this is not going to work and I want to watch it fail. Saturday morning comes. I get up, start looking at the wall, trying to think of what I'm going to do to build this bookshelf. I've got two hours to go. Tick, tick. My wife comes out, gets coffee, looks, sits down, and smiles. <laughs> Where are your plans? Plans. Men don't need plans. It's all here. It's genetic. God gives it to us. It's part of being male. So what's the first thing you do? What do I do first? Go to Home Depot. Yeah. <laughs> You want to have fun one Sunday morning? Go to Home Depot really early. All these men are running around, Ah, panic in their eyes. They've got a project. They have no idea what they're doing. They're looking around for people with orange aprons to explain everything to them because they've got only two hours to get it done. I was one of those men. I went around, got some stuff, came back, laid it down. Front, looked up at the wall, looked down at what I bought. Guess what I had to do next? Go back to Home Depot (laughs) because... I didn't make plans, so I forgot everything, so I went back, got what I was missing, came back, and I started to work. Now, I checked it out on YouTube, because that's where you learn how to do good stuff. That's how you learn how to build, is YouTube. Is it never lets you down, so uh, I looked up, and I discovered, and I did what I was told, and I uh, cut twice and measured once. <laughs> so the bookshelf was a little smaller than I intended, but, it, you know, it was still a bookshelf, right? I got it, and I hammered, and put some glue and stuff on it. And, and uh, no, my wife would come in and look at it. How many hours now? Oh, just give me a minute. I'm almost done. Almost done. Almost done. Because I was way past two hours. And uh, when she's out of the room, because I didn't want her to see this, wait till she's out of the room. And then I stood the thing up, and it looked pretty. Ah, okay. It's not really supposed to do that. But just in case, I bought angle brackets. So I put a screw in the top, put it against the wall, and put it right into a stud. <laughs> It's not what you're supposed to do. But it was not going to move. It wasn't going to go over. And I put a big book in front so she'd never notice. We'd be okay. And so I called her out and said, look, we're done. She said, really, that's it? All day, two trips to Home Depot, and this ugly thing is all I get? It's worse than the books on the floor. Let's go buy a bookshelf. That's how I create. It's not how God creates. Even when I go to the most beautiful sites in the world, A couple of years ago, when I saw the Taj Mahal, that is amazing. That is truly one of the wonders of the world. But you know what's on the outside of it when I was there? Scaffolding. They're trying to fix it. Even if we make something beautiful, it falls apart, doesn't it? It disintegrates, it destroys. That's why we have archaeology. They come and find the ruins of beautiful creations of the past. But God created something that was perfect in every way. That doesn't fall apart. The stars work absolutely perfectly, just as they did before. Something that was beautiful. Something that was wonderful. Something that defies all expectations. He made it all. And how did he do it? Make the perfect creation, which is, which is the universe. How did he make it? With his word. Just his word. Notice the mood. God says the first day, what does he say? Let there, let there be light. And? There's light. Like he just walked over and said, this place is a bit dark. Where does our light come from? From the sun. How many suns are there in the universe? Billions of suns. Universe. Stars without number. All of that happened when? When God said, let there be light. When he spoke. Remember the Big Bang Theory? The universe is expanding. It began one day. You know when it began? When God said, let there be light. That's how powerful He is. That's how powerful. But one of my favorites is the third day. third day. In verse 9, God said what? "Let, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. This place is a little too wet. Sounds like my wife just is beginning home improvement suggestions this place is good but it's a little too wet we need some dry ground so imagine you're there covering this event the third day you're there with cnn you're the videographer you're looking through the screen right and the commentator says we're here with god on day 3 of creation god says it's a little damp and he'd like to see some dry ground and then we hear god say what let dry ground appear Okay? And God says, let dry ground appear. And you're looking through the video finder. What do you see happening? What physically happened for dry ground to appear out of the water? What had to happen? Earthquakes. Good. All underwater, right? So what happens when there's underwater earthquakes? Tsunamis. Earthquakes, very powerful. Tsunamis, very powerful. What else happens for dry ground to appear? Volcanoes? And have any of you been to the Rocky Mountains? Anyone? Anyone? Where do mountains come from? Remember back in high school? What formed, what creates mountains? The plates collided, right? So, I, here's what I think happened on the third day. God said, let dry ground appear. All the, all the plates were one. And God spoke. <laughs> they broke. Earthquakes. Tsunamis happened. They begin to move. They move. They collide. Mountains pop out of the ground. Earthquakes, tsunamis, the most powerful forces in the world today. And ours are always destructive when we see them. But when he did it, it was always constructive. He refashioned the world by saying, let dry ground appear. And with the power of his word, it was so that's power that's amazing and that's why moses could go to pharaoh the most powerful man in the world as just a failed shepherd and stand in front of him and say let my people go why would i listen to you because moses came with god's word and with the power of god's word pharaoh fell to his knees and had to let them go right David, the king caught in sin with Bathsheba, the most powerful figure, Nathan, one little guy, he's got no political influence at all, tells him God's truth. And when he speaks God's word, what happens? David's heart breaks and he repents. That's the power of God's word. Jonah goes to Nineveh One of the most evil nations in all of history speaks the word, in 40 days you'll be destroyed, and they break out with national repentance. That's the power of God's word. It can't be done. No, it can be done, not with our words, but with his words. What happens in the New Testament? What does Jesus do with just the power of his word? He heals the sick. He says to lepers, Go, show yourself to the priests, and on the way, with the power of just His word, they are healed. He says to the paralytic, who even today surgeons cannot restore movement from a paralytic, the spinal cord is broken. There's nothing that can be done, but when God speaks, the spinal cord is healed. And He picked up His mat and He walked. He came to Jairus when his daughter had died, and he says to the girl who was dead, little Talitha kum, I say to you, arise. And she did. That's the power of God's word. God does not send Jeremiah out with his words. God does not say, no, in order to make a difference, I need to send a politician I need to send a social worker. I need to send a general. No, he says what I need to do is send someone more powerful than that. I need to send someone who will speak my words. I need to send a preacher. I need to send someone who will open my word, read what I have said, and speak it to the people who need to hear it. That's where the power is, and that's powerful enough to change lives. That's true. powerful enough to change history, and it has. A few centuries ago, Martin Luther was sitting in a little cell preparing lectures for the next day. He opened up God's Word. He turned to the book of Romans, understood justification by faith, and he came out and taught it. He taught God's Word. And when he preached, we will live by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. When he began to preach the gospel from God's Word, everything changed. The Reformation broke out, and we are sitting here today because of Martin Luther preaching God's Word as children of the Reformation. That happened in England. Historians wondered back in the time of the French Revolution when Robespierre was cutting off heads with guillotines and France was going through the terrible, awful, blood-soaked revolution that they were going through, and people wondered if France would even survive as a nation. Just across the channel, England had no problems at all. How could that be? How could England be spared? Ah, historian said, there's one big difference you know what England had that France didn't have? John Wesley. John Wesley was a preacher. John Wesley preached in the churches of his day, and people came and heard God's Word and responded when the rulers of the church didn't like that, and they kicked him out. They said, you can't preach in the church. He went outside to the the lawn, and the people went out with him, and they listened to him out there, and they were changed out there. And then he got on horseback, and he spent his entire life riding from place to place to place, preaching God's Word, and people responded, and the destiny of England was changed. What can one man do with little puffs of air? Nothing unless they are God's puffs of air, because God's Word is powerful. It changes the destiny of nations. That happened in Germany. That happened in England. That happened in America. I don't know if you know that, but it did. You know, on Thanksgiving, we celebrate the pilgrims coming over. Good godly people, Puritans, wonderful people. But it didn't take long, many generations, for people to lose the passion for God that those early people had. And historian J. Edwin Orr tells us that it was not long Gambling became prevalent, destructive. More children were born without the benefit of marriage than were born to a husband and wife. Immorality was rampant. Alcoholism was everywhere. It was so bad that on many Sunday mornings, many of the pastors could not find their way to their own pulpits because they were so hungover from the night before. America was quickly descending into paganism. But one Sunday, a man stood up. A local pastor stood up, opened God's Word to Hebrews chapter 10, understood what that meaning was, and communicated it effectively to his congregation. One man in one small town, that man's name, anyone know? Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon of all American history, and it is called... That's it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And even though he wasn't the greatest orator, I'm told he read it and looked down and didn't use much emotion, did all kinds of things wrong. It was God's Word. And when God's Word went forward, that congregation fell in repentance. They came out in the aisles and begged God for forgiveness. And it didn't stop there. That spark that began in his church in Northampton spread throughout New England. And it was not long before, in a few years Virtually every adult in New England heard God's Word preached. And revival, the Great Awakening swept across America, changed our destiny. The Ivy League institutions of today were started by the Great Awakening, started to help prepare more preachers for the thousands and thousands of people who had come to Christ and wanted to come back. The destiny of America was changed by one person who spoke God's Word And it changed everything. And we have been blessed with Finney and Moody and Billy Graham and others who have preached God's Word, and that has been so beneficial to us because God's Word changes things, right? When you want to change the world, don't send a general. Send a preacher. Would you want to change your community? Send someone who has the guts to speak God's words to the office, to the discipline, to the neighborhood, to their own family, because God's word changes things. It alters destinies, transforms lives and cultures, and I believe that. I believe that to the core of my being. That's why we do crosstalk. I believe it because I believe that I can change Cuba. I think I can change Vietnam. I know it's communist. We can change that. It doesn't matter if it's communist. You know, the early church didn't begin in a nice democracy, right? Right? It began under Nero. It began under some of the most oppressive leaders of all time. They couldn't stop it, and neither can the leaders today. I believe everywhere that God grows His church, He gives that church the gifted, godly people they need to grow. Do you believe that? I do. I don't think we need to do all the work. I think they're capable of doing the work. All we have to do is teach them to cook, right? All I need to do is help them understand... How they can understand and effectively communicate the Bible to their culture. If they do that, they can do ministry better than I can, right? So here's what my wife figured out. She's the math major, not me. We go one generation, and it's mostly North Americans. It's North Americans doing the teaching. Second generations, the indigenous people, the local people are helping us do the teaching. The next generation, guess who's doing all the teaching? they are, and the next one, and the next one, and so what happens is you start with small groups, and they keep multiplying, people teaching people, people teaching people, kind of like Paul said to Timothy, you know, pass on to other people, equip other people what you have learned from me, so that they too can fan into flame the gift that God has given. We do that, and we begin to start a movement, and guess what happens when we reach the ninth generation? Generation one, generation two, nine generations. You know what happens? We've got 150,000 trained biblical communicators in one culture. Isn't that amazing? I sat down with the president of North Vietnam denomination, and I showed him that, and his eyes went wide. He said, that's that's what we need. Yes. You need something that is transformative, that grows, that is indigenous. With 150,000, they can't persecute you anymore because you're too big. The people who are being reached are now government officials. They don't, want to, they don't want to persecute themselves. You will change a culture. We'll reach a tipping point. And that'll happen in Cuba, I believe. And I believe that can happen throughout Latin America. And I believe that can happen in Eastern Europe. I believe that can happen in Myanmar. I, can, I think that can happen in Kenya, in India. We can change the world with the power of God's Word. I'm not doing it. God, with His Holy Spirit, can equip the people that He has saved and gifted to do that work, and we can change the history of humanity. And you know what can happen? That God said that His kingdom is like a mustard seed, remember? The smallest seed, but it will grow under the biggest plant. With branches so wide that its shade will cover the world from one end to the other. That's what can happen. And it won't happen because of generals and social workers and academics. It'll happen because there are local people, gifted godly communicators, who know how to use this word and communicate it to their own people. Do you know what happens when you rightly divide the word of God? When you understand what God is saying correctly. When you rightly divide God's word and you communicate it to others, you know what that's like? Rightly dividing the word is like splitting an atom. What happens when you split an atom? Energy, right? massive amounts of energy is released. Everything around it is changed. It transforms everything. When you open up God's Word and rightly divide it, you release an energy that is literally out of this world. Nothing can stand against it because God's Word always accomplishes its purpose. I believe that He can do that as we cross-talk equips people around the world. I believe He can do it with you, because you have a Bible. And as you open it, rightly divide it, and you have the courage to speak God's word, you can change your family, you can change your neighborhood, you can change your office, you could change your profession, you could help change the nation. It wasn't Jonathan Edwards that changed the world, that changed America. It was the Word of God through Jonathan Edwards. What could God do through us? All over the world, pastors are getting up to preach. And all of them are wondering, in a world that we're living in, with the people that are in front of me, What can I do with little puffs of air? (laughs) You can do nothing. But when your puffs of air are his puffs of air, the place of the preacher is to transform the world with the Word of God. That is happening. With God's help, it'll happen even more. Amen? Father, thank you for giving us a word worth speaking, a powerful, transformative word. Thank you for giving us the tool we need to change this world for you. Father, even now, as we give our tithes and offerings, take what we've given for this reason, to expand the ministry of God's word through this church and these people and around the world for your name's sake and for your glory. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.